Well, let's turn together in our Bibles to John chapter 12 as we continue in a section of John that I've called the Passover plot. Uh, The Passover is the key feast. It's mentioned several times. It's the key link word that captures this little section of John's gospel. And as uh, we've been using the word plot in two senses, one in the negative sense of the conspiracy to get rid of Jesus and in the positive sense of the plot line, the storyline of the gospel itself. Both of those two elements, the negative and the positive, are coming together, aligning themselves, and are going to hit the destination that God has ordained. And what we've seen so far is that the so-called spiritual and political leaders of the nation of Israel are in a state of apoplexy about the popularity of Jesus. They've just noticed, seen, had demonstrated how popular he is as he has ridden into Jerusalem. Uh, And we looked at that last time on that uh, great occasion, that triumphal entry of Jesus into the city. They'd heard the shouts. There was the visible evidence in Lazarus of Bethany of the resurrecting and resurrection power of Jesus. And the kinds of things that were being said by the crowd, the hailing of him as the son of David, as the Holy One of Israel who had come, as the especially and long-expected God-anointed Messiah, all of that shook them to the very fiber of their being. And they were given to exaggeration and hyperbole, as you can see in verse 19 of this chapter, as they said to one another, look, the whole world has gone out after him. Well, you know, sometimes we say things and reality begins to follow the things we say. So they said, look, the world goes out after him. What they meant was, he's so popular. He's getting all the crowds following him and hailing him. But the next verse, John tells us a little detail that we don't know yet and which is going to demonstrate that, in fact, Jesus has come to be as the Samaritans found out in chapter 4, the Savior of the world. Because among those who went up to worship at the feast, there's the feast again, it's Passover, that's the key timeline. These Greeks came up to the feast as well. Now, these Greeks are not Greek-speaking Jews. These Greeks are most likely, most of the scholars believe, and I and I think rightly because of the description that's used here, these Greeks were not necessarily from Greek, Greece, but they were Gentiles. We know from the study of the period that there were an increasing number of people who were not Jews, who were, had no connection uh, uh, in terms of heredity or, or background to Jews, but they were interested in Judaism. A number of reasons for that. In amidst the plurality of gods that there were at that time, the monotheism of Judaism was attractive. In amidst, in amidst the sexual immorality that was basic, fundamental, built into the society, Roman society, Greek society, it was part and parcel of daily life. It meant every relationship you had was very unstable and uncertain. They were attracted by the morality of Judaism. 
And these people had come to be known as God-fearers. They wanted to know more about God, but they wanted to know more about the God of Israel. And these people had an interest in standing against the polytheism and the immorality of the prevailing pagan culture. These people came looking for Jesus. We still meet people like this today, I think, even in our society. People who are disillusioned with the spiritualities that are on sale in Barnes & Noble in their spirituality or religion section. They're disillusioned with those. They're disillusioned by materialism that leads people to value themselves, value their self-worth on the basis of their net worth. And they are fed up with, they they are disillusioned with the culture of immorality that shapes our media and everyday life. And they're looking for something else and something better. And it was these people who came looking for Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. Those words have a particular affection for me, or I have an affection for them, because I remember once sneaking away from a Sunday school party that was going on in the hall, sneaking into the church that I grew up in that was very like this building here, sneaking up into the pulpit and sitting down in the minister's chair and praying and then lifting my eyes and noticing that right beneath the lectern were these very words, Sir, we would see Jesus. And it struck me that that was the charge for every preacher, the charge for every minister of a church. Sir, we would see Jesus. These people came looking for Jesus. They came to Philip, who incidentally, in the providence of God, had a Greek name and perhaps even spoke Greek and was able to communicate well with them. And they identified immediately with them when he introduced himself to them. And Philip took them to Andrew. He went and told Andrew about them. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Andrew is an interesting character because Andrew stands out as somebody who's always bringing people to Jesus. He went and he brings people to Jesus. That's his character. And uh, when I was in London, one of my predecessors was Dr. Stephen Alford. And Stephen Alford uh, was uh, quite a well-known minister in, in London and indeed in the United States. And during the great Billy Graham crusade in 1954 in London, he, uh, that is Stephen Alford, had organized, uh, he was responsible for getting people to bring people to the meetings, that is to bring people that didn't know Jesus to the meetings. And he called this Operation Andrew. Uh, each one bring one was his strap line. Each one bring one, Operation Andrew. It's a great It's a great ministry. It's a great idea. If everybody brought somebody to church to hear the Word of God, then many more people would get to hear the message of life. Well, that's a little incidental bit there. But Philip went to Andrew. Andrew and Philip went to Jesus. And that precipitates the arrival of these Greeks on the scene. Just a little incidental little thing like this precipitates this next wedge of material that we're looking at this evening. These non-Jews looking for Jesus precipitated a crisis within the heart of Jesus himself. He takes their coming as the signal 
from his father that his hour had come. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered them, almost forgetting about these Greek people. He answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, interestingly, he had been saying all along, the hour has not yet come. He said it to his mother in Cana of Galilee at the wedding when she wanted him to do something about the fact that they were running out of wine. And he wanted her to know that he wasn't going to do it on her command, but only on his father's command. My hour has not yet come, he said to her. But now he's saying, the hour has come. This moment of vital, divine significance in the history of the world. This moment in which the Messiah would be glorified, the enemies of God overthrown, and people must decide about Jesus. That moment had arrived. Let me break it down for us. First of all, this was the time for the Son to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Up to now, it's been a not yet or a not this. Whenever he's been diverted or people have tried to divert him, there were certain things up to now he has been unprepared to do because his hour has not yet come. But now he repeats it. You'll notice the repetition of the now. Now the hour has come. It's come now. Now is the time. It's a decisive moment in the purposes of God. And everything else that's been going on in this gospel, the signs, the wonders, the miracles, the teaching blocks that have taken place, all of that has been a prelude to this moment. In fact, we could take a step backwards. His incarnation, His coming into the world, Christmas. The miracles that He performed, the wonderful things God did through Him in the lives of other people. The teaching that he gave as the great prophet of our God. All of that was all preparation for this moment of time. And now, now, after all that he's done, and now having ridden into Jerusalem, flagging up his royal authority and credentials. Now that the authorities have decided they must get rid of him. Now, he says, is the momentous moment. Now has the hour come. And he uses, I want you to notice, he uses this expression, the Son of Man. It's a, it's a well-known expression. It comes from the book of Daniel. There in the book of Daniel, this heavenly being comes to the throne of God, is, is able to stand in the middle of the throne of God, and he's given worship and dominion and a kingdom and worship that is due only to God. And Jesus takes that title and he applies it consistently to himself. And John, who prefers the title, the Son of God, here uses this expression because this was the expression Jesus used here. The heavenly creature who sits on the throne of God and receives the worship due to God alone. Now has the time come, he says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. And as Jesus uses this word glorified, he's using it for what is about to happen. And what is about to happen is his passion, 
his humiliation, and ultimately his death, and then only the resurrection and the exaltation to glory. He must go to glory by way of the cross. He had explained this idea back in chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Using that title again. He he said to them back then, there is no ascent without descent. Even in his humiliation, there is glory, the glory of the miracles. He glorified himself when he turned the water into wine, and he glorified himself when he raised the dead. But that glory is nothing compared to the glory that is his in eternity to come, and the glory that was his in eternity past. And without the humiliation, without the descent, there would be no ascent to heaven. There would be no authority of the Son of Man. There would be no heavenly glory for the Son of Man, as described by Daniel. Before the descent from heaven has taken place and been brought to its appointed conclusion. So he spells out the first phase of this glorification in verse 24. Truly, truly, he says. Those are very solemn, very elevated words. It's a formula that Jesus uses. I think the gravitas of his words is better captured in the Old English, verily, verily, I say to you. But it is far more solemn than just the truly, truly that we have, I think, today. It is authoritative. It is majestic and regal. It is solemn. Here is a divine being, the Son of God, and he is describing what is about to happen. Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He was going to descend. He was going to descend so low. He was going to descend so deep into the earth as to be crucified, dead, and buried. And he's saying to us, look, the rightful king of Israel can only enter his glory if there is debasement and a trial and suffering and death. In fact, he's saying this, that his glory would be in the suffering and in the passion and in the pain and in the cross. This was because by going all the way to the cross, he was obeying his Father and glorifying his Father. Back in chapter 6, Jesus has called himself the new manna, manna, like the manna from heaven that came to the children of Israel in the desert. For 40 years, they were fed on that miraculous food provided to sustain them. And there Jesus calls himself in John 6, the bread of life, the bread that had come down from heaven, the bread that comes to satisfy the hunger of our hearts forever. And now he's taking up that metaphor again, and he's saying something more about that bread. The grain of wheat must fall to the ground and die 
If you take a grain of wheat from its stalk and put it on a shelf or in a jar, it will remain useless, redundant. But you take that grain of wheat, you put it in the ground, it dies, and it begins to grow, and it will produce an abundant harvest. What he's saying is, I have to die if there's going to be fruit. I have to lay down my life if there's going to be a harvest. And even here he's reflecting the language of Isaiah in Isaiah 53. When the prophet writes that out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. And he goes to say he will see of the fruit the results, the outcome of the travail, the anguish of his soul. And as our Lord contemplates his atoning work on the cross, he looks beyond the agony of it to the fruit of it. He was not simply coming to make salvation possible. He was coming to make salvation certain. His work on the cross would produce much fruit. Now, sometimes we're overwhelmed, aren't we, by the sheer numbers of people who don't believe in Jesus. Back in Scotland, I think today, maybe 1% of people were in evangelical churches. It's not a big country. But if you belong to the 1%, it seems like there's a whole lot of people that don't believe in Jesus. And you imagine, you imagine the situation that must be here in North America today as unbelief becomes rampant and we think to ourselves, well, where is the promise that Jesus is making here? What I want to say to you this evening is this, that Jesus has said that his death would bear much fruit. It is bearing fruit. The fact that you are a believer is the fruit of his death. The fact that there is any believer is the fruit of his death. It is a miracle that there is anybody who believes in Jesus. It takes an act of God. It takes an act of divine activity in a person's life for them to believe in God. We don't just believe in God by chance or by accident or because of our background or our upbringing or of some kind of circumstance. There will be fruit. There are a people that he has died for that he will save. He will save his people from their sins. And there's no escaping the implication of this. Here in chapter 12 of this gospel, we've been already told that the death of Christ is the centerpiece of his life, the reason for his coming, the defining key to his role as Messiah. And he makes this repeated Reference over and over again of the fact that he is giving up his life for his own. The good shepherd gives up his life for his own. Giving his flesh for the life of the world. Chapter 6. The necessity of his being lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. On the tree that is the cross in order that people might look to him and live. And find salvation. And as he, as he says this, do you notice that he presses it forward into the life of the believer? And he says, you know, this is the way I have to go. I have to go by way of suffering, then glory. 
And if you follow me, you have to go the same way. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Do you see in verse 25 and 26, I really want to skip this and go right on to what Jesus says about himself and his work on the cross. Because in a sense, that has less disturbing implications for me. But look at what it says in verse 25, 26. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying he wants us to follow him. He wants us to serve him. He's promising us that we will be where he is and that his Father will honor us. But do you notice the cost? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, it means that I fall out of love with my life as it is. And I'm prepared for God to do with it as he pleases. When he says about hating his life, that does not mean he wants you to hate yourself. He doesn't want you to look in the mirror when you get home tonight and say, I hate you. That's not what he means. But what it does mean is this, that in comparison to what it means to follow Jesus, in comparison and contrast to what it means to be his loyal disciple in a world that wants you to go its way rather than his way, I am to hate that kind of life. And I am to commit myself to Jesus and to Jesus alone. Jesus says it's time for the Son to be glorified. He is glorified both in what he does on the cross and in his exaltation to glory. And he is glorified in his people who do not love their own lives, but are willing to follow him to the point of death. Those will share his glory. You will be where I am. My Father will honor you. He will honor you. If you're sitting on the fence because you're feeling the pressures of the culture in terms perhaps of Christian morality or perhaps in terms of Christian exclusivism, that is that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. If you're sitting on the fence, I want you to hear what Jesus is saying about this tonight. He's saying there's a day you will not be able to sit on the fence. He's saying right now you have to choose to hate that kind of life, as it were, and to commit yourself to come to see how far you've come towards him and then to leave it, the rest behind you and to take that step. Perhaps you think you're going to step into an abyss, that step of faith that brings you straight home to him. The Son is glorified as his people love him and love not their own lives to the point of death. Well, it's time for the Son to be glorified. And secondly, it was time for the issues to be faced. And there are eternal issues for Jesus here. Or there are sorely personal issues for Jesus here. Look at verse 27. He's talking about himself. The death that he is about to die that's part of the glorification process produces agitation within himself. He tells us that very honestly. Now is my soul Trouble. Jesus is no masochist. Like us, he shrinks from the thought of the bitterness of death. 
He would have agreed with the Apostle Paul, since his spirit inspired Paul to say it, that the last enemy of the Christian is death. The last enemy is death. There is nothing friendly about death. There is nothing kind about death. There is nothing good about death. Death is bad. It is the final enemy to be faced. And reflecting many of the godly in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Psalms, like Psalm 6, for example, where the godly are distracted and troubled at the prospect of death. Here Jesus echoes exactly the language of Psalm 42, verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. My soul is troubled. Here is his natural human reaction to the realization of the darkness of the path set before him and the very human need to give expression to those feelings. The very word suggests inner turmoil and agitation. And here you see both the Son's eternal glory and His very, very earthly humanity perfectly joined. My heart is troubled. Jesus had a heart. He had a soul. The Catechism says He has a reasonable soul. What does that mean in the 17th century language of the shorter catechism? The soul, the mind, the psyche, the heart, if not synonymous, were very closely related. And what he's saying is, I am, I am troubled within the depths of my being, within the center of who I am, of my own self-consciousness. He is troubled there in the core of his personality as the incarnate Lord. And what an amazing statement to come from the lips of Jesus Christ. My soul is troubled because He is going to say to us, let not your hearts be troubled. Well, have you got one thing to say about yourself and another thing to say to us? What He's saying is, because I am troubled and will die, you don't need to be troubled because I'm going to go and prepare a, pre prepare a place for you. And when I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you so that you're with me where I am. That's in the context here, isn't it? He's just talked about being with him. Now is my soul troubled. We have an insight, don't we, here into the psychology of the Son of God. Isaiah had said about him that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We don't read about Jesus laughing. He does tell a couple of jokes, by the way, usually at the expense of people who were pompous or people who were very wealthy and thought they had it all. But by and large, he doesn't tell. He, he, he never laughs, as far as we know. And I think the reason for that is that he is more and more displaying in his life the darker side of human emotions in his mission as the Son of Man, as the sin-bearer, substitute, the one who came to die. All of that lies heavily upon him, and none of that is a laughing matter. The Greek here reads, shaken, agitated. And I derive some comfort from that because there will be times in your life and mine when you are shaken agitated by circumstances, when you are in a turmoil, when your mind is distracted by the stuff you have to think about and the choices you have to make and the direction you have to go in. 
Remember when you were there, Jesus was there before you. Remember when you were there that Jesus was tested in all points like you are, yet without sin. Remember the words of the hymn writer, We go through no darker rooms than he went through before. The events before him, as they now unfolded, lay clearer on his mind than they'd ever done before, and they shook him to the core of his being. And he has this little soliloquy with himself. Do you notice? What will I say? Will I say, Father, save me from this hour? Will that be my prayer? Get me out of it. Beam me up. Get me out of the problem. No. But as he does in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, glorify your name. Your will, not mine, be done. And as he says those words, the whole of this corresponding, this relationship, this conversation rather, is interrupted by a voice from heaven. Verse 28. One of the few times in the Bible that God is said to speak directly. He spoke at Jesus' baptism. He spoke in the transfiguration. He speaks now. He speaks audibly. People could hear it. For some it sounded like thunder. Others were able to make out the words. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. God speaks from the glory. God is coming alongside His Son. We, we saw this in Psalm 110 where the Son is going to be exalted to the right hand of God. But when He's in trouble, where is God going to be? God is going to be at His right hand. Here's the Father coming to the right hand of His Son. Here's the Father coming to where His Son is, encouraging His Son for what is lying ahead. Here He is strengthening Him for the conflict of the cross and the agony and the pain and the suffering that lies before him, here is the Father coming to the encouragement of his own dearly beloved Son. While it was most certainly a supernatural thing, you notice that even a supernatural activity like this, there are people who won't believe in it. Some people, you know, say that if only God did something supernatural, then I'd believe in him. But in fact, the reality is, if God raised the dead, you wouldn't believe it. And if God spoke from heaven, you wouldn't believe it. If you have a heart not to believe, you won't believe anything that your ears hear or your eyes see. And so the voice from heaven confirms the hour has come. And as Jesus goes on, he talks about these eternal issues that are at stake and what is coming about. He says this, look at verse 30. Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You see, what's happening at the cross is this. There's going to be a transfer of power over the God-hating world into the hands of the Son of God. That's what this hour was about. Uh, he had come to confront the ruler of this present evil age, in John's gospel, he's talked about this figure again and again. He has challenged his opponents and said, those who are against me are children of their father 
And their father is the father of lies. He is a deceiver from the beginning. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. All false doctrine comes from Satan. All unbelief comes from Satan. All alternative explanations of reality come from Satan. Satan is the father of every untruth, every biblical deviation. Every lie comes from hell. And Jesus has come to deal with the ruler of this age. He's come to expel him. The source of every lie and slander and false doctrine with respect of God and of his Messiah, Jesus. And in doing so, he's confronting the world. You know, Satan is often described in the Bible not only as a deceiver, but also as an accuser. He accuses the the brethren, the brothers and sisters. He accuses them to the world. He, He wants the world to believe the worst about them. He accuses us to ourselves sometimes when we're on our own, in our own heads. He accuses us. He brings before our eyes all of our failures and and, uh, he questions the reality of what we believe and the reality of who we are in Christ. He, He loves to unsettle us, to destabilize us. He's an accuser. Jesus has come to face him down, you see. He's come to die for us so that no longer can Satan bring char- a charge against God's elect, because whenever he brings a charge against God's elect, God's elect are able to point to Jesus and say, he paid the debt. He's already been judged in my place. He's already borne the punishment that I deserve and is due to me. You're answerable to him, not to me anymore. You have a problem with me? Your problem is with Jesus. He's come to deal with the power of darkness. And this is the way through which he will be raised up and made very high. Look at verse 34. The crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? That language about being lifted up is the very language Jesus has used. Look at verse 32. When I, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What does he mean by lifted up? He means the cross, obviously, at one level. He was lifted up, pinned to a cross. But beyond that, he means more. He means when he was raised from the dead and exalted to the Father's right hand as a prince and a savior, lifted up to the highest place that heaven adore, that heaven has on offer. The highest place that heaven affords is his by sovereign right. And he's saying, when I'm lifted up, that language is Isaiah. When he's talking about the Messiah, that language applies to Jesus. When I am lifted up, I will draw people to myself. That's what he's doing in the world. Those Greeks coming, looking for him, were a kind of precursor of this great movement when people all over the world, think of the millions of people in China who believe in Jesus. Within my lifetime, when missionaries were expelled from China, we thought it was the end of the world. There were China prayer meetings 
How were we ever going to reach into the darkness that was China without missionaries? Well, God did pretty well on his own in China. He has a people. And he's drawing those people to himself. And the lifting up of Jesus on the cross would lead to the lifting up of Jesus in glory. Well, all of that brings us to the end here. And the end tonight is simply this. You have to decide. It is time for people to decide. We're told again the crowd misunderstood him. Uh, when he talked about being lifted up, uh, especially by the death he was going to die, verse 33, they answered him and they said, we heard the Son of Man is going to live forever. We just don't get what you're talking about here. We obviously realize that you're talking about death. You've already been talking about that. You've been talking about that all the time. We, we get the message. You're going to die. But we, we know that the Messiah is going to live forever. So what is all this about? They misunderstood him. They started discussion about what the law says about the Messiah. What these people are doing is they're placing their expectations of the Messiah over against Jesus, and they're saying, we want what we want more than we want this Jesus. We want what we envisage the Messiah would do more than we want Jesus' kind of Messiah. So let's dismiss him. And in response to that discussion, Jesus says these solemn words for us tonight as we close. He says to the people of his day, the light is among you for a little while longer. Who is the light? Jesus is the light of the world. He is there with them only for a little while longer, a matter of days for these people. And he challenges these people, these people of Jerusalem. He challenges them, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Because once it overtakes you, you'll walk, all right, and you'll go on walking through life, but you won't know where you're going. But while you have the light, believe the light, that you might become sons of the light or children of the light. While Jesus is there, he's saying to these people, while I'm here, believe in me. Become part of my everlasting kingdom. Well, of course, that was a warning, wasn't it, to those people then? And we know what happened. AD 70, Jerusalem's gone. Wiped, wiped out. The people scattered everywhere. The city leveled. The temple destroyed. The people scattered. And even today, it's got a tenuous hold on life for the last 60 or so years. But more than that, Jesus is present wherever his word is preached. He's here tonight because we've been preaching his word. So therefore you have to decide what you will do with Jesus. While the word is here, while the light is turned on, while his word is open on your lap or in your hands, you must believe in the light. That is, believe in Jesus. That you may become sons of the light. There's your opportunity this evening. Will you believe into him? Will you trust in him? Will you throw yourself on him? Will you rely in him? Some of you will. Many of you already do. And tonight, will you? That's my question. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that your son, the Lord Jesus, 
was so committed to your purpose and plan, whatever it meant for him. And we pray that tonight as we hear what he has to say, we pray that we as his people would be willing to give up whatever we have to give up to follow him. We don't even know what that means yet. We pray you prepare us that when the challenge comes, we're ready for it. But above all, we pray that tonight people who don't know him would find him for themselves. Or at least keep looking. At least come back again with a question under their breath, sir, we would see Jesus. And in your good time, with your Holy Spirit, will you bring them to see him for who he is. We pray in his strong name. Amen.